we had a membership class yesterday where we had about 30 people that um, gathered together and we went through who we are as a church. And there's a portion in there that I tell them, if you're looking to join ACAC, one thing you need to know about us as a church right away is that you are, at some point, you're going to discover that you're not going to be comfortable and that it's not convenient uh, to be a member. So if you're looking for a convenient and comfortable church, please do not join ACAC. And those of you that have been here for a while, you're giggling and laughing because you know this isn't a convenient place to worship and it's not always comfortable. One part of that is because of our diversity and another part is because where we're located. And if you drove today and you didn't get my message earlier in the week and discover that this road was closed... You discovered the inconvenient part. And here's why I'm, I'm bringing this up. When you leave today, this road is still going to be closed. And it's a part of Open Streets Pittsburgh, which is sponsored by, I believe, Bike Pittsburgh. And it's a great thing for our community, um, but it's inconvenient for us. And here's the thing. This is part of who we are. And I want to remind all of us that as you leave today, you may have some frustration because it's going to take you longer to get out of the garage and the Pittsburgh police are going to help us to do that. Let me remind you that when you leave, you not only are representing ACAC, more importantly, you're representing Jesus. Everybody who is biking and walking on this street knows that you're leaving church. And so what kind of example would we be setting if our faces show our frustration and Lord forbid any of our fingers show our frustration or any of our words? Are you with me? You understand what I'm saying? So just take your time and recognize that this is one of those weekends where you're going to be a little uncomfortable and you're probably going to be a little inconvenienced. Now most of us experience this. Um, we have an uneasy feeling in our gut and in our mind as we see and understand that our country has lost its moral compass. And that as time and time goes on, we drift, we seem to drift further and further away from Christian principles. Probably especially with our older generation, they sense that and would even say that this isn't the same country that they grew up in. In fact, today, the idea of Christianity itself really has become a punchline. If you tune in to a late night talk show and Christianity comes up, it's normally uh, the butt of the joke. If you're watching a TV show or a movie and there is a Christian character on that show or movie, how many know it's often they're the crazy person and they're unauthentic and they're hard to relate to? However you look at it, Christian influence in today's culture is rapidly disappearing. Many faith leaders and pastors, we call it the decline of American Christianity. University professors call it post-Christianity in America. Secularists like to say that it's long overdue. And for many, especially as Christians, some think we just simply have a marketing or branding problem. And what I mean by that is that the solution to that is to make Jesus more relatable to the world. To make church and Christianity more cool and comfortable. Um, even this past Super Bowl, there were millions of dollars spent on a particular commercial that was amazingly well done. That made Jesus very relatable to those who aren't followers. And I'm not criticizing that particular commercial. I'm not criticizing 
artists. There are movies. There are TV shows. We even have Christian clothing line now. And as an artist and creative myself, I love the fact that we have faith-based artists and, and all of those things that we're doing good art. But let me assure you and tell you that the problem that Christianity has in America is not marketing and branding. The problem is far deeper than that. Christians don't have a marketing problem. They have a sales force problem. Let that sink in. We have simply people that don't believe the product we're selling, so to speak. We aren't living our lives as if that really mattered. And it's time that we realize that the greatest threat to American Christianity in the 21st century is not radical Islam. The greatest threat to American Christianity in the 21st century is not the rise of secularism. It's not a political party or a particular politician that is the greatest threat to American Christianity. And believe it or not, it is not the LGBTQ community that is the greatest threat to Christianity in America. You know what the greatest threat to American Christianity is? Christians. We simply are not living the kind of life that attracts, astonishes, and amazes people who don't follow Jesus. Christianity has lost its influence in the world because we have neglected our responsibility to be salt and light to those around us. We have neglected to be who Jesus called us to be. And thereby the world has decided to do the worst thing they could possibly do. Worse than persecution, the world ignores us. However, if we were to start living as salt, if we were to start living as light, the world would pay close attention to what we have to say. Immediately following his opening that we call the Beatitudes, Jesus dives in and he calls us to be salt and light. We're going to look at that today. And the basis of what Jesus is saying is that Jesus intended his followers, you and I, to have a positive influence on our world stand to your feet this morning let's read this portion of scripture together it's Matthew chapter 5 verses 13 through 16 read this with me you are the salt of the earth but if the salt loses its saltiness how can it be made salty again it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Father, we need you. We need Holy Spirit to help us be salt, to help us be light. Lord, forgiving for, forgive us for projecting, Lord, the problems of your church and kingdom on others instead of looking in the mirror. So I pray that as we look deeper at the sermon you preach, that your spirit would convict us, that you would change us in the areas that we need to be changed so that we would be your salt and we would be your light to a dying and decaying world. Amen. You may be seated. As he so often did, Jesus used 
a parable here or a real-life illustration, and he did this to drive home significant spiritual truths. And here he is saying that you and I are to be salt and light. We just read it. He said, you are the salt of the earth. Now, notice he didn't say a particular group of people. He didn't say my disciples. He didn't say even the church is to be salt. He said you. You, 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 and me. Meaning, this is personal. Each and every one of us individually are called to be salt and light. And it begins with one of those most famous lines that almost everybody knows, even those who don't follow Jesus, will say things like, you know, he's a real salt of the earth kind of guy, or she's a real salt of the earth kind of woman. And what do we mean when we call somebody a salt of the earth kind of person? Well, what we mean is that they're genuine, they're useful, they're honest, they're straightforward, they are an authentic person. So what did he mean then when he said that we were to be salt? Well, salt was one of the most common substances in the ancient world. And there's plenty of analogies that Jesus could have been using, and there's lots of uses for salt. Back in that time, in ancient biblical times, in the time of Jesus, salt was actually, it had monetary value. Roman soldiers were paid partially in salt, in salt and they would actually revolt if they didn't get their ration of salt. Our English word salary actually comes from the Latin word salarium, which means salt money. How many have ever heard this expression, that person isn't worth his salt? It reminds us of the high value that salt had in the times of Jesus. Another analogy that, or reason that we use salt, it's to season food. Now, I love fresh-cut french fries. I know it's hard to imagine that I do, but I love fresh-cut french fries. But I don't care how fresh they are, if they don't have salt out on them, how many of you know it's just, ugh. fries need salt. Our food needs salt. It's seasoning. Salt also benefits your body. It provides strength and energy. It helps with hydration. It helps with digestion. And there are other health benefits to salt. But there is also another use of salt that was really meaningful during the time of Jesus. Salt was used as a preservative. Salt slows the process of spoiling. It draws out bacteria and it prevents its spread. If you leave meat out unrefrigerated, it will spoil and rot. But if you cure the meat with salt, it can last a long time. And this is certainly not only one of the main purposes of salt during the time in which Jesus preached this message... But I believe it was the idea that he was using for his followers when he said we are to be salt. So what did he mean by that? He meant that you and I are to be the salt that preserves a decaying world. Jesus had no illusions about this world, society, and its true character. That our world, society, culture is like a piece of rotting, rotten meat. It's deteriorating and it's decomposing more and more every day. And though it, in our 21st century, in 2023, we have at our fingertips some of the most advanced technology that we have ever had. Although each day brings new breakthroughs in medicine and science and communication and mass production... I think we would all agree that despite all of that, the moral climate of our world continues to grow darker and darker. We live in a moral, decadent society. It is like that piece of meat that's left outside in the sun. And its decomposition is slow at first, but eventually the whole thing becomes rotten. 
This is the effect of sin on our world. Paul talks about this in his letter to the church in Rome. In the book of Romans, he writes, against its will, look at this, all of creation, this world, creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. Sin, think of it this way, sin is the bacteria that infected God's good and perfect creation. However, Paul says that there is a day when not only we, his children, will be redeemed, but creation itself will also. John, the writer of the book of Revelation, sees and he writes this, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there, was a loud, there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world, now remember, let me pause, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is preaching uh, anti-kingdom of the world. He is presenting a sermon and values of the kingdom of God, which directly oppose the kingdom of this world. And John says the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. One day it will come where God will make things right in our world. But until that day comes, he has left you and I. He has left his followers in the kingdom of darkness. And we are to dispel the darkness and we're to lessen its decay. So how do we do that? As salt in this world, how do we slow the spread of evil in our world? How do you slow the spread of evil in your neighborhood and in your workplace? How do we do that in our community? We are to be salt. We are to be living, useful, genuine, honest, straightforward followers of Jesus. We are to be authentic Jesus followers. And here's the beauty about being salt. It doesn't take much salt to do the job. Just a little bit of salt in the right place will suffice. Do you remember the story of Abraham praying for the city of Sodom? Okay, I think it's uh, Genesis chapter 18. God is going to destroy the city of Sodom. And Abraham's nephew, Lot, lived in Sodom. And, God, and Abraham goes before the Lord and he says, God, if I can find just 50 righteous people in that city, will you not destroy Sodom? And God says, yes, Abraham, if you find 50 righteous people, I won't destroy Sodom. And it, it's kind of funny when you read through this because Abraham keeps negotiating or trying to negotiate and go back with God. Abraham says, okay, how about 45 people? And God says, okay, 45. And he goes, well, what about 40? What about 30? What about 25? And then finally he gets down and says, God, if I can find 10, can you, can you let me find 10 righteous people in the city of Sodom? And if I do, will you not destroy it? And God finally agrees. Think of this. A whole city, Sodom would have been saved if Abraham could have found only 10 righteous people. And you think our world and our culture is bad. Sodom would have made Las Vegas look like it was part of the Bible Belt. It was bad news. But instead, Abraham could not find 10 righteous people in the city. But God would have saved it for only 10 righteous people. There's a sociologist by the name of Robert Bella, and he said this is fascinating on how it doesn't take much salt to do the job. He writes, the governing values of a whole culture may be changed when 2% of its people have a new vision. 
A sociologist said that a whole culture can change when only 2% of its population have a new vision. I did some research this week, and the population of the central north side, here where this church is, the population of the central north side is 2,686 people. You know what 2% of that is? Using a calculator, I figured it out, it's 54 people. So think of this. If we had 54 people living here in the central north side that were authentic, on fire followers of Jesus Christ, it could change the climate of our community. If you went to Allegheny County, where there are 1.2 million people, it would take 24,760 of us being authentic followers of Jesus that could change our city. And I'm sure you're thinking of it and knowing where I'm going. The population in America right now is 332 million. Meaning if we had 6.5 million faithful, sincere, straightforward, honest, authentic, obedient followers of Jesus Christ, we could change our country. Now you may be thinking, wow, 6.5 million, Pastor Allen, that's a lot. Do you know how many people in America profess to be Christian? 210 million. Here's the problem. We have Christians that think Jesus said, be salty. <laughs> How many have somebody who's salty in your life? What do I mean by that? There's an open wound. What do they do? They throw salt on it. They're angry. They're provocative. They push buttons. They're aggressive. We've got Christians who are salty, not Christians who are being salt in culture. All you need is 2% and you can change an entire culture. All you need is 2% and you can change your family. You can change your workplace. You can change your neighborhood. You can change a community. You can change a city. You can change a nation. You can change a world. Jesus intended his followers to have a positive influence on their world. And all it takes is a handful of authentic and obedient followers of Jesus to do that. But salt wasn't the only thing Jesus said we were to be. He said we were also to be light. You are the light of the world. Now, if you look up the dictionary meaning of the word light, all of us know what it is, but the definition is a source of illumination. And what does light do? It penetrates darkness. It reveals what is hidden. And it exposes. Most people hate being in darkness, especially when we're in an unfamiliar place. Why? Because darkness, when things are dark and you can't see what's around you, it distorts reality. Everything looks and it feels different. It's only when you turn on the light that you see things as they really are. As a parent, uh, when we, our kids were young, my son loved Legos. And if you, parents, you know where I'm going with this. If you have kids that love Legos, the worst thing in the world is when you wake up in the middle of the night and you're walking through the kitchen and your kid leaves Legos and you step on them barefoot. Ouch! And then you have to repent for the words that come out of your mouth. Okay? But when you turn on the light, you can see the obstacles that are ahead. And God has called us to be light because there are people that are walking in darkness and they're stepping on Legos that are going to destroy marriages, destroy lives, destroy communities. And we are to be the light that reveals 
and exposes those obstacles. Jesus said, let your light shine before others. Another translation reads, let your light shine for all to see. Here's the thing. You can be in an empty room by yourself, and when you flip on the light, the only person that it benefits is who? You. So you can serve Jesus, but if you serve Jesus in secret, the only person you are benefiting is you. Jesus didn't call us to be light in a room by ourselves in darkness. He said we are to be light to others, in front of others. If your light is going to make a difference, it must shine so that others see it or else it won't be doing any good. And Jesus said two things will happen. Two things will happen when we let our light shine in front of others. The first thing is that people will see our good deeds. Now, we think of that word good as something positive, something that makes us feel happy. It's, it's a positive thing. It's a good attribute. The Greek meaning of that word good is handsome or beautiful. So let me explain this in an illustration of my own. I met my wife in college. We had the same major, which meant we had some of the same classes. So husbands, I want you to think about the first time you met your spouse or fiance, your girlfriend, um, ladies, you can think of the first time you saw them. And for me, I remember I went to class. I didn't know my wife, but I'm sitting there and she walks in the room. And it was like, Whoa. who is that? I mean, the hair standing up on my arms. I'm like getting sweaty. I mean, her, I'm like, look, I'm like, I got to know who she is. So what I do the next day I went to class is like, I'm going to sit a little bit closer over here. Because when you're attracted to somebody, you want to move closer to them. And all of a sudden, everything else just be, kind of comes fuzzy. Jesus is saying that our good deeds will be an attraction to other people. So that the way you speak in your neighborhood, the way you act at the office, the way you, you act when you leave church and the road is closed down, there will be an attraction that people will see in you and they will go, man, I... I don't know that person. I don't, I, I don't know anything about But there is something about the way they live. There is something about the way that they talk. There is something about the way in which they post that I'm drawn to. They have no idea it's Jesus. But your, your lives, your speech, your actions are attractive. And it draws people to them. There's a uh, famous line that's often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. You probably have heard it. It's contributed where the quote is, preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. Think of that. We're all preaching. We just need to use less words. We need our actions to be good and attractive. Jesus said our good deeds will shine in front of others, but he also says that our good deeds will glorify our Father in heaven. Jesus said, your light will shine when your good deeds are done in front of others. And when that happens, your heavenly father, God, Jesus, will be glorified. That's how much influence our good deeds have. We can point people to God. You see, our good deeds do the shining. But God is the one who gets the credit. Light doesn't bring attention to itself. Light simply illuminates the room so that the things around it can be seen. Let me give you an illustration. 
Um, They're going to put a picture up that's probably very familiar to you. I love our city skyline. I mean, I think this is just one of the most beautiful cities um, in America. And this is a view from the West End Overlook. You've probably taken the incline up there and do it. And here's the thing. This is Pittsburgh at night. And as you look at this and you look at its beauty, and man, Pittsburgh is awesome. You see the bridges and the point and the rivers. Your eye is not drawn to the light itself. The light simply exposes the beauty of the designer and the architect. That is what our good deeds are to do. It's not that it brings attention to us. It exposes the designer. It exposes the architect. It brings glory to the Father. So here's my question for you today as we wrap this up. I want you to honestly answer this. Are you living In such a way that your words and your deeds are slowing down the evil around you. Are your words, are your actions the salt that is slowing the decay around you? Is your speech, is your Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter posts, are your actions so beautiful that others are drawn to Jesus? Paul writes about this, and he tells us, be wise, be smart, be strategic, be intentional. The way that you act towards outsiders, towards those who don't believe in Jesus, to those who aren't in church this morning. Be wise in the way that you act towards them. Make the most of every opportunity, he says. Let your conversations be always full of grace. And then he ties this back to the Sermon on the Mount. Let your conversation be seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. One of my favorite quotes of all time is written by an author, Madeline Elangle. Listen to her words. We draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all of their hearts to know the source of it. The idea Jesus is teaching us through this picture of salt and light is about distinction. That for us to be effective, for us to be distinct to the world around us, we must obey the words of Jesus and strive to be like him. He intended his followers to have a positive influence on their world. He meant for you to have a positive influence in your workplace. He meant for you to have a positive influence at school or at your university. He meant for you to have a positive influence in the community in which you live, in your neighborhood. So let me ask you, can we turn this around? Is it hopeless? Are we doomed? Is it possible to change the momentum? The first followers of Jesus, they did. The ones who literally heard the Sermon on the Mount in person. Those first century Christians, think of this, they had no money, they had no political power, they had no influence, and they really didn't have a plan. But you and I are here today because of them 2,000 years ago. And in a short amount of time, they changed the world. How did they do that? Because they believed so much in the reality of the gospel that they were willing to share their possessions, to give up their status, to give up their reputation, to give up their lives. And they did it 
They changed the world because they were salt and light. I know it's easier to be salty. It's easier to throw stones and to blame others for the loss of Christianity's impact. It's easier to drag Jesus into our politics. It's easy to drag Jesus into our boycotts. It's easy to drag Jesus into our anger-filled criticism. But let me tell you, it hasn't been working. So how about we do what Jesus said us, for us to do? And that's to be salt. And that's to be light. Stand to your feet this morning. I grew up going to Sunday school. And there's a song we used to sing. Some of you already know where I'm going. For others of you, you're going to think this is really weird because you've never heard it before. But it ties in, and this is how I want us to end today. So if you know this, sing it with me. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This Let it shine. Doesn't do us any good if we sing that song and then we walk out those doors and we don't actually do it. 2%. Just takes a little salt. So Holy Spirit, help us. Lord, help us to slow the process of decay and evil that is at work that we're surrounded by in our community, that we're surrounded by at school, that we see in our nation. Let us be the, the preservative that you meant us to be. Let us shine our good deeds so that others will see them and be drawn to you. And in that, giving you glory and you honor. Let our light shine. In the name of Jesus, amen. God bless you. And be nice.